Hello, Upfront Summit. How's everybody? Um, we're excited to have come into the doors. That was the doors, right? That was the doors. Okay. <laughs> I remember the doors. Okay. So. Well, I remember. I was there originally. Yeah. I remember the movie. Uh, um, <laughs> thank you for that. So uh, I'm Karen Ortman. I'm thrilled to be here today with Jeff Jordan, managing partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Some of you may also know that Jeff did certain uh, iconic things, such as taking OpenTable public. Before that, he's had a long tenure at eBay, where he led the acquisition of PayPal, and then ran PayPal, and today we're gonna get into a number of things across venture and operating. So Jeff, thrilled to have you here. Thank you. Actually, the other thing we acquired at eBay was Half.com with Josh and Chris, so oh, yeah. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, maybe let's just start off with kind of setting the context for venture in general. Um, we all know about, you know, there's, there's quite a bit of late stage capital flowing in from both public and private markets. We're still kind of digesting whatever the post we work moment means. Maybe just set the stage for us. How are you, um, how are you thinking about the industry um, as a whole? You know, it's, um, uh, there's way too much capital. But the only the constant since I've been an investor, which is coming up on nine years, is there's always too much capital. Um, the, uh, it, it's interesting to watch because the cycles come and go, and so there is definitely a WeWork effect going on now. You know, in terms of, you know, high burn has gotten less less appealing to people. Um, the key questions on is WeWork a real estate company or a tech company that's coming up in a bunch of segments. So, I mean, it, it's affected it, but you know, you can't time markets and it's a cycle. So all you do, all, our main motion is work with our, our companies who we think will be impacted to be ready when they're going out on the market. You know, so just, you know, so you would see Lime pushing very hard for profitability now, for example. That, that uh, is in response to the external environment. The team's done a really nice job on it. Have you, and so as you sort of think about maybe the portfolio as a whole, are you having more conversations about burning capital efficiency across the board, or is it kind of segment by segment? Very selective. I mean, it's, it's only certain companies, because early stage is still frothy. I mean, just we're, we're still, we're seeing, you know, behavior that's just like, whoa, people, you know, writing checks without diligence again, and, you know, that, that part of the cycle. The late stage, high burn companies are the ones who I think are, you know, that, that small basket is the ones that are, should be paying attention. And, and how do you guys think about, you know, as a, as a multi-stage multi, a multi -stage fund, um, when, when and how you go in? What stage is sort of the preferred stage? Has that changed based on market or is it made more based on partner? That has changed based on market. When, uh, when I first joined, we had a reputation for writing uh, big checks at obscene valuation in a bunch of strategic companies. Uh, you know, w one of those was Skype. Uh, we were gratified when it actually, you know, we, they forexed the, their money in a couple years, so <laughs> that, that helped. But then growth got nuts. And so we didn't write growth checks for a long time, like five years. And then the growth market kind of came back. And so we uh, recently, our, our, the last fund we raised was uh, what we call late stage venture, which is kind of CD high growth companies slotted way before a soft bank would come in typically. Got it, got it. And then as you, has the early, give us a flavor for how you think about the early stage practice. Yeah, um, the, the main thing we've gone in and out of is we started doing a lot of seeds. We do very few seeds now. Part of it, we don't want to compete with our upstream investors. And part of it is uh, the, the biggest challenge we were having was uh, competitive companies perceiving we had a con conflict risk when we had invested in their competitor, which was a completely fair 
you know, observation. We just didn't think about it. So we back way off on seed. But uh, the main funds are uh, try to plow into A's and B's now. And then, this, you know, typically as it gets to CD, that goes into the late stage venture. And would you, what, what advice do you give to founders when you're meeting them early and it's maybe a bit early for, for you guys to come in as they're sort of navigating a seed environment where they can raise around in a second? bring in an A firm that's yeah. going early into a seed round? We, we, we believe, you know, the counsel we give is the quality of the investor matters. It's not just, just not valuation. And you just see this play over and over and over again, where, you know, just kind of like, you know, you know, when you take on a board member, you are taking on someone who has the fiduciary responsibility to hire and fire you. And if it works, you're going to have that board member for like 12 years. So. Pick carefully, pick wisely, you know, get, get a really good investor. It's someone who you trust, someone who you, know, you think you have a rapport with, has your back. Somebody recently said to me, I don't think entrepreneurs realize that venture capitalists have tenure. Yeah. <laughs> it's like being a professor at a university yeah. with tenure, which I thought was yeah. an interesting comment um, because you really can't fire your venture capitalist, yeah. but the, you know, the reverse is obviously yeah. true. Um, okay, so we're gonna shift gears into um, trends. Um, so uh, venture capitalists love to talk to and talk about goats, but often act like sheep. I practice that. Come on, guys. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> as we know, we play a lot of buzzword bingo. Yeah. One second VRAR is in, one second D2C is in, now SaaS is very in. What are you, um, I mean, what are you guys kind of viewing as a bit overhyped sectors that you're maybe more cautious around right now? Um, we've been fairly cautious on e-commerce and D2C um, of late. The great company, you know, they can grow like crazy. The thing that's been hard for that whole sector is to actually make money. I think, as best I'm aware, there are, after 20 odd years of venture capital investing in the U.S. and tens of billions of dollars going into e-commerce, I know of five companies that have a billion dollars in sales and are profitable. One is Amazon that started before we started our fund. We're in Fanatics, we're in, we were in Zulily, and then there's Chewy and Stitch Fix. That's pretty miserable for 20 odd years and tens of billions of dollars in terms of returns. So we, we, we've been leery on that. Is it, po is it possible though that, that uh, it's sort of, we went through this period where we overfunded companies and they weren't forced to be excellent around yeah. IP or yeah. tech or diversified marketing? Uh, because presumably consumer behavior is not, not staying static. Yeah. And you know, I find it fascinating. I walk down the streets in very desirable neighborhoods in Los Angeles and retail stores literally can't stay in business. Yeah. And so, is it, is it possible that, you know, the contrarian view might, might it, hold? That it could be. Uh, Ms. Green's on, on stage later today. She's, she's, had, she's been killer at e-commerce, so I, I give her tons of credit. It's, so it, it could definitely be. I mean, that's the, that's the interesting thing about the investment business is you only know the answer, like, 10 years later. Yeah. yeah was I right? I don't know. Let me get back to you in 2030. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah. It's, it's a difficult business in that regard, right? Yeah. There's no Google dashboard that yeah. we can look at every day. <laughs> um, so maybe flipping gears and talk to us about some of the kind of trends or areas that you guys are, um, or you specifically, are most excited about. So I'm boring. I stay really close to home. I mean, the, the, thing, the companies I operated look a lot like the companies I invested in. So, I mean, uh, eBay, PayPal, and OpenTable look a lot like Airbnb, Pinterest, and Instacart. And so, yeah, I'm looking, I typically focus on marketplace businesses or businesses where I perceive the, the opportunities for network effects to develop if they're successful over time. Mm -hmm. And so I've stayed 
pretty boring. The firm's gotten pretty expansive. We have, a, um, we have our main fund and our late stage fund. We also have a bio fund uh, with the intersection of bio and uh, digital, as well as a crypto fund. And so we, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we are pretty expansive. And I think we're now up to 18 general partners. Wow. So maybe going, like, go, go, drill down a little bit on some of the trends where you spend more time. Maybe, maybe just start, I, I think you're allowed to speak about this, but can you talk about sort of your, when you came into venture, I think a few of your first picks were ones that are now kind of the, perhaps the most, the, call them, you know, they, they are the most iconic consumer brands of the moment, you know, Pinterest, Airbnb, et cetera. Talk to us about those first meetings. I, I just lost the touch over time, apparently. So <laughs> no, be, no, uh, yeah. I mean, it yeah. takes time. I, that was meant to be a compliment. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so there, um, uh, there's a great uh, professor at Stanford uh, uh, Business School named Jennifer Ocker. And Jennifer has this class, and she does some really interesting counterintuitive classes. One is humor in business, and the other is storytelling. And she had me as a guest. I'm like, what do I know about storytelling? And then I, I, I'm talking to her, and she goes, uh, do, do you, you know, how do your entrepreneurs tell stories? And it's just like, I remember the Airbnb pitch, like almost word for word, because Brian is a unbelievable storyteller and he's mesmerizing and he's got energy and charisma. And so it's funny, I remember the Pinterest pitch because Ben is just as talented and couldn't be more different. Brian's a showman, Ben's quiet and deliberate, you know, just said, but they both told an unbelievably good story. And, and for us, we have this concept called uh, product founder fit. Yeah. You know, we're, we're not looking for mercenaries. We're looking for someone who came to this, you know, they didn't go to business school, do a spreadsheet and pick, you know, the, the one with the most green balls. They, you know, they, they got an earned secret that they uniquely have. And that, we, you know, I, I have a bias towards that kind of concept. And, and so, I mean, I'm sitting here and thinking, were you at home scrapbooking and then Pinterest came to you and you just got it? Yeah, yeah but I, I'm in touch with my feminine side. <laughs> Perfect. No, but the, um, uh, he uh, was rapping musicals behind the scenes with my partner, Mark, yo, who is yo, also yo. a musical fanatic. So, <laughs> um, But I'm not allowed to ask him to rap on stage, apparently. Yeah, um, yeah. Katie, uh, Katie would be upset. What was going, you know, I, I always think it's interesting, right? You, as a, to be a great VC, you have to know enough to not get into, you know, to not feel like there's adverse selection, but not so much that, not know so much that you talk yourself out of it. And so, you know, I spent a long time operating in the, what we used to call local space. So when Nextdoor and companies like that yep. came around, I just couldn't see how they would work. Um, Open table, Instacart, yeah, well, offer up, wonder yeah, <laughs> <yeah>. school, yeah. <laughs> um, what was your reaction to say Airbnb, uh, the kind of the thesis or the theme? Did you just, did you say, oh, this is inevitable? Or did you uh, say, this sounds crazy? Okay, the first time, Absolutely crazy. I, th I thought it was the stupidest idea I'd ever heard. Um, <clears throat> like I, I like my privacy. The concept, a stranger in my bedroom, me in a stranger's bedroom just wasn't there. And I just didn't understand it. So I was at an investor conference soon thereafter. Um, and this now is nine years ago or something. And Brian's been working at like 10. Wow. So it was pretty early. And I, Brian presented Airbnb at this conference, closed investor conference. And I'm in the back row going like, oh my God, it's deja vu all over again. He's describing eBay. It's you know economic empowerment at a massive scale, huge trust and safety issues. Um, started as a quirky little quaint thing, and the community of users who were avid took and made it huge. So after I, I go up to the banker after the meeting, I go, I got to meet this guy, and he starts laughing. I'm like, Why are you laughing? And he goes, Brian asked to meet one person at the conference, and it's you. And I, so I sat down, 
Brian, why did you want to meet me? He goes, oh, eBay's stupid. <laughs> it's like, okay, I think I got that. And so, like, you know, that was one where, you know, you, I, I turned around in 30 minutes. Really? Yeah. And you, you turned right. around in 30 minutes and wrote a check? Uh, no, sorry, I wasn't yet a venture capitalist, but oh. I did get catch coffee with him the next week for a half hour that turned into three hours. Wow. And then soon after, I became a venture capitalist. So Mark and he were talking about around, and when I was being recruited at uh, Andreessen Horowitz, they said, what company should we be paying attention to? And I go, Airbnb, and Mark goes, they're raising around. And so I call Brian saying, like, I'm going to join Andreessen Horowitz. And that's, so. ama that's amazing because you know when you're when you're prepping for VC interviews, you always have to know the company to present. Yeah, <laughs> yes, almost you do. always very very yeah. wrong. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, that one that one worked okay. Yeah. Um, do you is, 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 is the story behind their early rounds was were you guys sort of unique? Did you uniquely get it while other people were talking oh, themselves? No, it was, it was a very hot round. So it was it's, a hot they, round. they they they. <clears throat> I mean, it was about forty people in the company. It was over. It was a what is now termed a unicorn. So it was another of those rounds where you know the criticisms came out. Oh, they just overpaid. They bought it. They did all this. But <clears throat> uh, we were competing with two very, very good investors, and uh, we were fortunate to to uh, land it. So, so maybe shifting into some of your your newer invest investments, yeah. and in general, maybe before we get there, talking about what you're looking for in marketplace investments today. Um, one thing I'm curious about is we've always kind of been obsessed with GMV growth and rake. Yeah. And now you have all of these marketplace companies who are um, layering on products very quickly, financing products, other yep. product, products that make them a bit yep. more SaaS-like. And so what are you looking for? Are the metrics changing? Um, I, I haven't, in the companies I'm looking at, I'm not seeing a lot of, of metrics changing. I still look for core liquidity. I mean, just it's uh, GMV, conversion rate, you know, uh, uh, cohort curves in their behavior, uh, you know, long-term retention, things like that. So <clears throat> the, I, I've, you know, at least half my investments are marketplace, or this is the marketplace model applied to vertical X. And so the well, recent one was uh, marketplace model applied to preschool. So the Airbnb of preschool is Wonder School. Mm -hmm. And that's just the same classic, you know, two-sided marketplace, meet in the middle, you yeah. know, economic empowerment again at a, at a scale. Someone can be a teacher earning $30,000 and Wonder School can put them into business running their own preschool out of their house. And um, they can earn, be an entrepreneur running their own business earning six figures. And yeah. so, you know, it's, it's kind of a magical economic empowerment for that side of the network. The other side of the network, there's a severe uh, preschool shortage in the United States. Um, it was funny that when I was considering that investment, I was getting lobbied by half the women in the firm saying like, that's a great idea. We need that, you know, kind of thing. So it's uh, Turns yeah. out it's useful to have women in firms. Yes. <laughs> um, and you've hired and, and, you know, some of some of my favorites. So um, um, and, and so maybe are there are there other kind of areas that you are actively hunting themes or theses verticals where you haven't seen the metrics or the founder yet from a, like the marketplace model? Yeah, there are a couple that I mean, I, I love the at blunt level, the hollowing out of Craigslist. That's a gift that just keeps giving. So I keep looking for the last couple categories. Uh, OfferUp is really cannibalizing the goods category. You know, Airbnb, the shared rooms, and all that. You know, the classic thing. No one's done blue collar services yet. It, well, no one's done rentals yet. Well, 
And so, uh, waiting rentals for rentals of stuff. Uh, no, rentals of a house. Uh, uh, you know, my kids. You know, my daughter lives in San Francisco. They just moved. They still go to Craigslist. Yeah, it's insane. Wow. Uh, and you know, bad experience. You know, I used to be able to say this. Craigslist does not know the mobile the smartphone came out. They just debuted a smartphone app. So, you know, they, it just took a while to write. I think that's 10 years to write their app, but it's, uh, it's, it's such a nice, attractive On project. the blue collar side, or I mean, I guess when I was at IAC, one of our biggest properties was HomeAdvisor, An Angie's List. Do you not view that as a very liquid? I don't, not as, as liquid. As, it's not a, the classic marketplace where it's really meeting in the middle. And I, I actually visited Angie when I was at eBay. Yeah. I mean, because I viewed, I long viewed one of my misses at eBay as we didn't get into services, particularly. Yeah after we had PayPal, because then we had the payment loop and everything. What I think I missed at the time was that you needed the smartphone. Yeah. And you, know, you, need, you need the provider to be connected during the day when they're out working. And so the smartphone was required, but I still, not, I, I mean, there, there are people, you know, poking at it, you know, thumbtacks, you know, doing, making a pretty good run at services, trying to figure it out. But, you know, with, his, with Marcus Lay's move, it might become a marketplace, but historically it was just Legion. Yeah, no, yes, very well-priced lead sold yeah. at exactly the right rate. Yeah, he's a very, uh, he's a very smart young man. Yeah. Ma many, yeah, many of them obviously would be a one-time type yeah. of thing. So. And that, that's, one, that's the biggest challenge is the only two repeat services are typically home cleaning and, and yard maintenance. Right. And yard maintenance, you don't really care who's doing it because it's outside. You yeah. care a lot who's cleaning your house because it's inside. And so that, that's been slow to digitize as well. Last quick thing on the trends, because I want to get to a couple other topics. Um, you, we, tell me about this Gen Z sports media business yeah. you funded. I, I, Jeff's it, apparently very, very, very cool. There, um, I am actually very cool in this one. Um, the, the sports has a huge sports media in the U.S. has a huge issue. It's an age problem. Young people are not consuming, uh, are not watching sports anywhere near like. My old people like me did it. And so some sports are aging at an amazingly fast rate. Baseball is basically aging a year a year. No new kids come in wanting to watch baseball, and the people who watch baseball just grow, get age each year, so the average is up. Um, the, the other part of sports media that's brutal is you have the rights issues. So, you know, just say, okay, you need big checks. Over time, it started by Zach, uh, Dan Porter and Zach Wainer. Um, uh, Dan did OMG Pop at that last company, so he understands the social mechanics. Started with high school sports, gave all the, developed an app that it, the friend of a basketball star could use to track him during the game. And when he did something spectacular, a highlight, you just say save. It would upload it to overtime, and overtime would then distribute, distribute it out to different channels. That's how they started. Um, what they then developed by distributing it to uh, Twitter, Snap, YouTube, the kids love them because they're done both. It's their age and it's done with their aesthetic. It's, you know, it's a huge reaction shot thing. Oh my God, Zion Williamson when I was high school just did that dunk, people ramming around, you know, falling over. And, you know, I look at it like that's juvenile as hell. A 18 year old looks at it like, that's pretty funny. And so Overtime is already, um, they're doing well over a billion uh, video views a month now. Yeah. And you know, you know, um, they're, they're doing their own celebrities. At the NBA All-Star Game last year, Overtime Larry, who's a nice guy, I mean, he's just compelling for you. They, he's, he's homegrown talent on Overtime, is walking across the, uh, the, the arena at the NBA All-Star Game. And 
15, 18 year olds are chasing him like he's, you know, like he's LeBron. And it's just kind of like it's, they, they, they clearly got in accord. So I it's think, really I think it's, interesting. It's, it's super interesting to me the way this, you know, the, you, you can kind of grab onto these stars in this media when they're nascent yeah. and it's carrying them through college and then professional sports where you have all these other platforms to leverage. Yeah, no, so the interesting question there, do they stay that young aesthetic or do they, are they able to age with their audience? Because, you know, Zion Williams was kind of somewhat discovered on overtime, yeah. you know, all his high, best clips from his high school days, you know, were being uh, distributed on venues like ESPN yeah. through overtime. And now Zion still likes the overtime guys. You know, when he got to Duke, the four freshmen did a, 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 an interview with specifically with overtime, and so it's the way my husband feels about his Yahoo feed. Really? Oh, oh, oh gosh. Too much. Too much. Yeah, sorry. Um, no, it's, it's very that's that's very interesting, and I mean, I think it, it becomes uh, you use the players to build the brand and do the brand, and the players live together yeah. in the same way. But it, it definitely a really interesting thesis. Yeah. Um, so maybe shifting over. You spent years as a hardcore operator. Yep. Um, how does that transfer to venture? What do you like with your founders? What is still relevant? Where do you have to hold yourself back? Well, one of the biggest uh, questions I had when I was making the transition um, uh, was, uh, would I be comfortable not having my hands on the wheel? This is Reed Hoffman's uh, 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 metaphor, is as an operator, your hands are on the wheel. And Reed, he told me this one time, I thought it was interesting. He views himself as sitting in the passenger seat. He, and he's not supposed to grab the wheel, but you know. So the the biggest question I had would I be the, would I just be reaching for the wheel because yeah. it's just the motion I'm used to. Turns out I didn't need to reach for the wheel at all. I, I found it quite easy. And I, I, another uh, former VC turned operator, Andy Radcliffe was. Uh, he's founded Wealthfront after being an illustrious career at Benchmark. Um, I, I was an early. Uh, he calls me co-founder there. So I'm talking to him early. He has to fire his first employee. And he's going like, this stuff is, this operating stuff is hard. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, when I was a venture capitalist, I'd, I'd be talking to my company for three hours and then I'd stand up, pat him on the back and say, hey, good luck with that. See you next quarter. You know, and that motion has its advantages. <laughs> that, that, that is for sure. Are there, are there certain stories from your past um, that allow you to be mo most persuasive with your founders? I mean, the, the, the bit, I, I, like moments that you see, like you see repeat behaviors where they're doing X wrong uh, or right. I mean, the, the, the way you get to be a pretty good operator is you make a lot of mistakes and learn from them. So I, I find the most effective one is, is not telling them what to do, but just say, listen, when I, I, I've been involved in situations like this. I've tried these three things. In my experience, this didn't work. This was horrible and this was the least noxious. And so that typically, I think, Gets her attention. We have a few of Jeff's former direct reports here today, including my partner Greg Bettinelli. And I was told to ask such questions as, "What does he do when he gets up at four in the morning?" And they both said, "What do? <laughs> what is your style when someone comes to a meeting unprepared?" Apparently, that doesn't go well. So, um, <laughs> actually, someone in this room, Shri, where are you? <laughs> supposed to be in the room, put out a blog today on it. There you go, yeah. Saying um, uh, that, uh, I, that apparently I was slightly intimidating at eBay, not because I was a yeller, but because I was pretty deep on the product and had pretty high expectations when people came in. 
that they they similarly were deep on the product, and so uh, you know it. Uh, uh, apparently, Shri found some value in that. So yeah, I'm glad, oh, glad they all said it. it with a smile on their yeah. face and uh, in, in a very glowing way. A little, little, little bit of high standards. So yeah. well, that, that they high, high standards fairly applied. They, it seems like they've they've served you very well. Yeah. Um, they're all fans. They are very prepared for the upfront summit, yeah. and they are fans. Um, maybe shifting that over to Andreessen as the managing partner to Andreessen. How do you think about picking people. Um. Yeah, no, it's a, it, 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 Drew Horowitz is a very unusual venture firm. I mean, we're, I think we now have 187 employees. That's probably more than our five closest competitors combined. And so, you know, it is a talent business. And so what they, we, we have, uh, a, as I mentioned, 18 GPs and a deal team. We also have a set of networks that we've built that we find are helpful to our founders, particularly first-time founders, networks of executives or engineers or customers or follow-on investors or, or marketers. And, um, you know, basically, it, it's a company. So, uh, it, you know, a lot of what I learned as an operator is, is true. There's one huge difference. It's a partnership. So I'm managing partner, but I, I, I'm not a boss. I'm, I'm an equal economic partner with my other partners in the venture fund. So how do you herd 18 cats as, you know, when, you know, in the company, the motion's pretty easy. You get to make the call. I don't get to make many calls. I mean, we all make calls, and yeah. so it's just, and you guys I, have a pretty high conviction approach, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. Any um, uh, any uh, GP can invest money in a deal in their area of expertise, assuming they've done the work to understand the competitive set. You know, like it, they don't need a single other yes. Is that right? They, it could be one on seventeen. But if you're that convicted, it, now you have to have a lot of conviction if seventeen of your partners are yelling at you. But um, uh, very few of our investments are um, have been unanimous, and some of the ones that you know uh, I'm not allowed to talk about because of the RA thing yeah. that that performed well are were very controversial yeah. within the firm. Not very controversial, but there were different points of view. And you know, like, I wouldn't do that, why? You know, kind of thing, so yeah. it's, it's interesting. So we're gonna end on a fun topic. So it turns out Jeff and I both love sports. Uh, he runs a pretty spectacular pickup basketball game that I'm, I'm hoping I maybe will get an invite to. Um, uh, I run a pickup game here in LA. Uh, tell me, maybe make, tell people a little bit about what it's done for you, but maybe make the case for hobbies. Because I, I have only refound hobbies in the last couple yeah. of years and changed my life for the better. Talk yeah. about this hobby. I, I've, and I've, what I've it's got done a few hobbies. For, you um, and for others. Sports for me, I mean, it's been important. I, I'm, I, 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 I'm stupid enough still to, to be highly active and competing at an advanced age against 24 year old you know, D1 college athletes. Um, <clears throat> but for me. Humble like, brag. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on there, man. That's that's uh, yeah. How many other 61-year-olds are? Uh, <laughs> Apparently, the key is you should be. You have to be a good dribbler. The post game deteriorates rapidly. Yes, it does. But uh, for me, uh, the lessons of team sports and the lessons of business are are incredibly similar. The term, it, they're same lessons. They're just different terminology. You know, it's continuous self-improvement, uh, being a good colleague, being a good teammate, just uh, all these things. So uh, for me, um, when I'm asked why, you know. You know what's the philosophy you bring? It's like it's a it's a team sport philosophy. My job is to make everyone else on this team more successful, and you know and and do it in a way that I you don't take credit for it. And yeah. and so those lessons for me have translated very linearly from the uh, sports world into what I do for a living. Any of your partners play with you? Uh, none. 
<laughs> Actually, it's, it's a dirty secret. Very few VCs like sports. I mean, there's, it's like that scene in Animal House where they, the, the nerds at the frat keep getting huddled into the same room. It's like, it's me. I think Keith Raboy's here later. Me, Keith, and Bill Gurley are the three. You know, you go to the NBA uh, All-Star game. Hey, Bill. Hey, Keith. You go to the NBA Finals. Hey, Bill. Hey, Keith. You know, it's just it's the same little group. So, so there ain't a lot of us. Josh is an honorary member. So, yeah. Maybe, maybe take us home with what is the most delightful non-venture-related moment that has come out of sports or your basketball game for you personally? Oh, boy. I didn't prep him on this one. No, no, that one's, I, I won't give a good answer. I'll give a simple one. Um, I have been on this field before, but I was uh, honorary captain of the Stanford football team when they were taking on uh, UCLA four years ago. Uh, and I walked onto the field uh, with Christian McCaffrey and Solomon Thomas, uh, who were two captains at the time. UCLA brought this guy named Rafer Johnson, you know, so I, I had to take him, but uh, he wouldn't <laughs> be an Olympian. Uh, but it, uh, that, that was a pretty special experience. And, and all those, I, I have a lot of friends now from that experience who I still, I mean, I run around to NFL cities because I know that Blake Martinez of the Packers and Harrison Phillips of the Bills and, you know, Christian and Solomon and so it's fun. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, listen, I think the lesson there is have hobbies. Venture have capital hobbies. is a lot. It's important, but it's not everything. And please join me in giving Jeff a big round of applause. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.